Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. We're going to pray again one more time. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Lord, how good you are. Um, and and uh, all of the painful situations of our life, all of the empty situations of our life, all of the inconveniences in our life um, remind you of what gain we have in Christ. And so this morning, um, we ask that you be gracious to us in ways uh, that we cannot imagine, that words and music and even assembly cannot produce but which you have promised to do amongst those very things through your Holy Spirit. So we ask for your mercies this morning. Praise in your name. Amen. So we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping today. Um, we are going to, uh, in December, we're going to start our Advent series for the Christmas seasons. We'll take a book or a break from Proverbs there. We'll be back in Proverbs Next week, uh, we'll be in Proverbs chapter 6, and, but as Paul alluded to this week, we're taking a break from Proverbs and be looking at the Colossians text that was just read for us today. And our text today deals with two issues that maybe you picked up on um, that are relevant this Thanksgiving week, both in our church and in our culture, and those issues are unity or love and thankfulness. If you watched election coverage at all this year, uh, there's one question they keep asking every pundit and every expert, and that is, has there ever been a more divided America? Is there ever more people divided about key issues? Everywhere we look, people are actually being spoken of by where we differ instead of by where we are the same. And this has actually crept in to the church. Social media is a wonderful thing. Social media is also a burdensome thing sometimes. I'm sure you guys have seen on Twitter, on Facebook, or maybe perhaps even in the social media of the gathered church, that there is dissension, divisions, and even at sometimes hostility brewing over hot button issues like race, social justice, masks, the coronavirus, politics, whether sweet potatoes are a legitimate Thanksgiving food. And the truth is, all of these things are important issues. All of these things actually should be talked about in the church. And our text today, if you've noticed, it's not going to answer these issues. But what it is going to bring is it's going to bring us to these differences, to bring us to each other with an overriding lens of what we share in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything else is downstream from that. And so this speaks to a unity that is unique in today's world. But secondly, it also speaks to Thanksgiving. Given all the things we've dealt with in 2020, it's easy to be ungrateful or at least to justify our lack of gratitude. And this can happen on macro levels. Um, it can happen on micro levels. How many of you have seen memes or silly things on Facebook where it said, my plans, then it's like 2020, it's you like falling down a staircase or something like that. And how much we hope for 2021 to be better. If we could just make it to 2021, and I share all of your hopes uh, for that. 2020 has not been fun. And yet perhaps in the midst of this, we're forgetting what it looks like to actually be grateful for what we have in the moment. Instead of just optimistic for what might come in the future. That is gratitude in a biblical sense. 
And this is important for us to discuss because our culture is quick to prescribe what brings unity. It will tell you what it takes to be united to those who are around you. And it might not be the same thing the Bible presents. It will tell you what you can turn to for comfort or gratitude. But here in today's text, we see the true and profound nature of biblical love and gospel thankfulness. And this is really important because the church in Colossae, which is what we're looking at today, was not immune from these tensions. Turns out, Christianity has been wrought with issues since Genesis chapter 2. And here we see in Colossae, there was political turmoil. There's a guy named Nero, you might have heard of him, was increasing his role as emperor and becoming increasingly abusive among his own people and setting up persecution that would soon follow the Christian church. There was spiritual turmoil as this church heard the news that their beloved Paul was imprisoned for the very same beliefs that they shared. And there was societal tension as believers were passing judgments on each other regarding issues that were not prescribed or prohibited in Scripture. On top of all of these things going on, there were those who were actively trying to lure Christians away with the promise of a false gospel and a salvation apart from grace through faith. But it's in this tension that Paul cues this text as an arrow into the heart of this anxious, this frustrated, and this burdened church. And by God's grace, his word is good medicine for us today on this Thanksgiving week. And the big picture we're going to see today is this, is that God's grace gathers the church in harmonious love and rules the church in thankful worship. God gathers us in a unique harmony and he rules us in a unique thankfulness. And we're seeing this in two parts. Uh, you could see in your Bible, it kind of split in two. In Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14, we're going to see harmony through love. And then in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see worship through thanksgiving. Now, harmony, love, unity, gratitude, thanksgiving, all of those things are things that if we gave you kind of this menu and said, would you like these things in your church, you would probably say, yeah, that sounds good. But I think perhaps we think too little. We think only idealistically about these things. But in this text, these are distinguishing marks of a church. To be a church is to be covered in love and to be thankful. In fact, they are commands in this text. They are imperatives. To not have biblical thoughts on the love we share amongst each other, to not have biblical thoughts on the posture of our heart in gratitude, is to disobey this text is to not ignore it. It's not just to idealize it. It's to actually disobey it. Even in 2020, we don't get a pass on loving each other and expressing thanksgiving. But this is where God's word is good to us because maybe already I, I feel like a father standing and condemning people because when we command, we tend to feel burdened by this. And the truth is, as a father, I can command my kids to get along by means of discipline. I can command them to say thank you and to look polite, but I cannot command them to love one another. I cannot command them to feel gratitude from their heart. But this is where the gospel is so good because God is going to command these things, these weighty, pervasive things, but he's also going to provide for us what we need to heartily obey these commands. 
not from white-knuckled legalism, but actually from grace he gives us in the gospel. And this is our first point today, harmony through love. Read with me Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So here we have this list of commands that Paul is giving to the church that start with this overwhelming uh, command to put it on. Paul's using this illustration of clothes. When you've been gathered as the church, you get new life in Jesus, which is what Colossians 2 has been about. You put these on like a new wardrobe, like a new body. This is what the church is to equip themselves with. And we see in here compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, loving each other, and lastly, binding each other together in perfect harmony through everything that follows. That's the effect of these commands. And there's really a lot that's required of us in this text. And as I alluded to, these things can maybe be burdensome if we think we have to muster it up. Because let's face it, it's not easy to love people. It's not easy to bear with people. If you ever tried to force yourself to love someone, you found a difficult task. If you ever tried to force yourself to like working out or eating your vegetables, you found it to be pretty hard to do. Even the fictitious genie in the movie Aladdin, this cause, phenomenal cosmic power of the genie is limited. Can't make someone fall in love and it can't raise somebody from the dead. But God is no genie and he is capable not only of raising us in Christ but he's actually capable of giving us new affections in our conversion, changing our hearts so that we might be other-oriented in all of our lives. And what you notice in this is there's this clear statement, there are commands, but then there's this clear statement of who you are and what you've been given. And who you are and what you've been given is what sandwiches all of these commands that are in the middle. Look again at how he opens, speaking to who Christians are, their identity, in the first part of verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So that's describing who you are. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The church he's writing to are God's chosen ones, God's elect ones, God's called out ones, God's precious people who through the gospel he called to himself in faith. If you today believe in Jesus, you are one chosen by God. One of my greatest privileges in life is to be one chosen by Sarah. She chose to love me. But in Christ, God has chosen to love you. When you think about, if you have faith in Jesus and you think about how that came about, it's not because of your brilliance. It's not because of your background. It's not because of coincidence or a combination of your American heritage or anything else. It is evidence only of God's unmerited and unearned grace to call you to himself through Jesus. To come to Christ is to come to him chosen by God. And here Paul points out the effect. Like, what is the effect? What changes when you are one chosen by God? Well, he says two things. You are holy and you're beloved. The word holy in this sense means to be set apart. Christmas is around the corner. Some of you are maybe 
eyeing the Black Friday deals to buy those Christmas gifts. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you have multiple gifts that you're going to unwrap, you tend to kind of identify the, the one that you think, and you kids, you know that, like you Lego fans, you shake, whichever one has all the jingles of Legos, you set that aside for last. You want to set aside the one that's most valuable, save it for last, you set it apart from the rest, and this is what God does with holiness in our salvation. He actually takes us and separates us because of our value and because of our worth. Now, this is phenomenal. Do you realize the language that God uses to describe the church? In Ephesians 1, uh, those of you who are in Bible reading group, we looked at this this week, he calls the church his inheritance. The church is God's gift to himself. God delights in us, and so he separates us. He makes us unique, like Jesus, so that we are distinct from what we used to belong to. We are holy and set apart. But not only are we set apart, we are beloved. To be saved by God is to be loved by God. No one is saved by God who is not loved by God. And no one is loved by God who is not saved by God through Jesus Christ. No one is saved by God apart from God's emotions being towards you. Do you understand that? If you're a Christian, God is not apathetic towards you. God loves you. If you want to see God's love, you look at what he did to send Christ to die for you and what he did to turn your heart to see that sacrifice in your life. And this love God has for us as the beloved tells us something about God, but it also tells us something about ourselves. God is loving. And we see God's love because he loves sinful people. People who Paul says here need to be forgiven. Look at Colossians 3, 13 and 14. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see the encouragement Paul is giving us to act that's in line with our identity. He's saying, love one another dearly. And he's saying, here's where you look when you struggle to love. You are loved. He's providing everything for us. God is giving you in your forgiveness and in your salvation everything you need to fulfill the demands God gives to love. He's saying, do this, buy this, and here's the funds you need to buy it. Here's exactly what you need to bear with, to love, and to forgive others, which means we love as the church, first and foremost, because we are already beloved. We love out of an overflow of what God has already done to us. We forgive because we are first and foremost in the gospel forgiven. This community, this unity is supposed to look different from the world because it's holy from the world. It's set apart from the world. This community and all the communities of God's church across the globe aren't to look like other communities in this world because by nature of what Christ has done, we are different and therefore we treat each other differently. The love that binds us together in harmony is a witness to the world where when they see how we interact with one another, what they're actually seeing is the promise of how we might actually interact with God whom we've sinned against. What it looks like to find peace with someone whom our sin has wronged and yet has received forgiveness. And this list is really distinct because if you've read many of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he loves lists. And that makes sense because Paul was a legalist prior to his salvation. Uh, he's the one making all the checklists, you checklist people. And he gives these checklists when he talks about new identity in Jesus. 
But this one leaves off a lot of other things and includes only what is exclusively necessary to create a Christian community of compassion and unity. Everything he gives in this list requires it to be executed in the community. It's about how we interact with others. And this is important because look at what Paul says. Look at the makeup of this church in Colossae. Right before this uh, verse, in, in, or right before our text today is verse 11, and look at what he says. Here, that is, in God's salvation, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, he's saying, look at all these people who are part of the church. Yet when they gather, they're defined, not by any of those superficial or ethnic boundaries, but by Christ. When we talk about unity in the church, it's a dangerous thing to talk about because we often think it's easy. We see pictures of the early church in Acts having everything in common, sharing every, all that they had, and we think, well, yeah, that would be really easy if we were part of the church in Acts, if we're part of the New Testament church who saw or were hearing eyewitness accounts of the gospel. But what we see in the New Testament is actually how eclectic and how different the early church was. There are people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different social and economic brackets. In fact, what's interesting is in just about every New Testament book, in every New Testament church, and in every New Testament letter, there is some point of potential division or uh, friction in the church. And these issues stretch from how people interpret the Bible to how they interpret the law to how they view politics and to their own societal preferences. In Romans, Christians are wrestling over why some people could eat certain foods and not be sinning and other people could eat those same foods and be sinning. Who's right? Who has the right conscience? In 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see a lot of things gone wrong. We see members lording their spiritual gifts over other members who have different gifts. We see discrimination between the rich and the poor. And we see a false division between those who boast their chest saying they follow Paul and those who boast their chest saying they follow Apollos. In Galatians, we see Peter and Paul, two apostles, get into an argument about issues. We see the tension between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. In the book of Ephesians, we encounter what Paul calls hostility inside his own church, between the Jews and the Greeks. In Colossians, the church is arguing over which days are the right days on which to worship. In First and Second Thessalonians, there's a debate over when Christ will come back. In First Timothy, Paul alludes that the church is looking down on Timothy, their pastor, because of his age. In James, we see a church openly playing favorites when it comes to care and discipleship. Do not forget that amongst Jesus' 12 original disciples was Simon, a zealot for the Jewish state, and Matthew, a Roman sympathizer. But what brought Matthew and Simon together is the same thing that brings the church together in Colossians 3.12, the call of being chosen in God, the call to Christ. We want to be a church zealous for evangelism. We want to be a church passionate for the lost in our neighborhood and across our globe. But if we want to be a church passionate 
and convicted that God will receive glory from every tongue, tribe, and nation, then we cannot neglect this text. Because this text demands unity not in ethnicity, unity not in politics. Those things might exist, but chiefly this is unity in Christ. The church, this church, will always be a place of potential division because the gospel is so diverse in its salvation. Praise God for that. Praise God that you don't have to be like me to be saved. Praise God I don't have to be like you to be saved. Praise God that there is no preconceived idea, ethnicity, thought, or, or, or uh, uh, opinion that dictates whether or not you have the ability to come to Christ. But God brings eclectic people from different backgrounds to the gospel. He saves them by the washing of the water with his word. And he says, look at how neat this is. Now love each other, you broken knuckleheads. And it's hard. And that's not to say that all divisions in the church are bad. Right? Unity for the sake of unity is not good. That's not what the Bible holds up. There are divisions which are severe. The church is called to draw lines between those who preach Christ and those who preach a false gospel. There are instances in the church where where to discipline members who profess Christ but live in unrepentant and unchanging sin. But even these divisions actually exist to protect unity, to show what is a Christian and what is not. But here in Colossians 3, where he's not talking about those things on which we divide, We are called to bear with one another slowly and carefully having what he calls the heart of compassion. What's literally, if you have a King James, you probably giggled, the bowels of mercy from our gut. God gives us the ability to be merciful to those to whom we belong in the church. I will say this right now because I don't want to sound like I'm correcting a massive problem in our church. I want to be prescriptive here. I have friends in churches across the country, and I have heard stories of how believers in churches are responding to each other over what issues they're leaving churches for. And I want to be clear, that it has been an immense grace that all of our elders affirm to pastor you guys in the midst of this changing and odd time. Despite everything that's gone on, we have been humbled to see you guys bearing with one another in faith. And we understand it hasn't been easy. And that's why we need this text. Because notice what Paul assumes. He assumes that a church would do a good job bearing with each other. But there comes a time when we're not called to simply bear with each other. There's a time where we're called to forgive each other. In other words... We've been at this difficult time for nine months now. Seems like nine years. And as we continue to care for each other, as we continue to bear with each other, as we continue to bring all of our various backgrounds and we together try to run towards the cross and holiness in Jesus, we will find those who have actually sinned against us. And it is to be expected that Christians, yes, even Christians, will sin against each other. And the church, or the, the world, needs to see this. It really does. How many times have you heard the phrase, well, the church is full of hypocrites? A hypocrite is not someone who sins. 
A hypocrite is someone who expects that they will never sin. And so as a church, when we sin against others, we need to repent. And when others have sinned against us, we need to forgive. Why? Because Christ forgave us when we were yet his enemies. And the word translated here as forgive in Colossians 3 is a unique word. There's another word the Greek writers, the New Testament writers often use for forgiveness, which is more of a legal transaction, like I forgive your debt. But the word here for forgiveness is a unique word that has as its root the word or the idea of grace, of of charis. It's actually the same root word that the words for thanksgiving are going to share later on in this text, which means when we forgive each other, we are not forgiving each other because we're polite. We are not forgiving each other because we have a stoic sense of justice. We are to bear with one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to love one another because we chiefly have been given grace. And that grace we have in Jesus is the seedbed of which we give everything out of. God has given to us everything he's asked from us in the gospel. We were once enemies of God himself. Contrary to all he knew to be good and true, And yet Christ came to take away our sins because of his love for us. And it's that well of grace that enables us to forgive and to bear even when things are hard and difficult. There's a unique principle in rubber that allows it to be used as those kind of like safety seals uh, throughout our world. It's one of the top materials that people use um, when it comes to making sure things are safe and seals don't break. And that principle is called resilience. And its resilience means that when it's struck or when it's hit or when it's bent, it immediately bends back to its original shape. It's what it makes it malleable so that things can actually work. And the principle which gives the church its resiliency as we bump into each other and things in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which when pressed, fills us with resilience. Gives us safety to be a church of broken people being saved by grace day by day. You see, we, if you are a Christian, know what it's like to bear with people for Christ. Bear with people for Christ bore with you. We know what it's like to love sinners saved by grace because Jesus loved you enough to save you by his own grace. And in the church, we might be diverse in many ways, but above all, we are to be bound together in this gospel love, in this shared experience which binds us to God through Jesus Christ. And our response to this should be thanksgiving. Not begrudging love, not little brother, love your sister love, but gospel love. This is where we see our second point today, worship through thanksgiving. Read with me Colossians uh, 3, 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here we see this unique progression, right? In Colossians 3.12, we see the church is chosen by God. But now in Colossians 3.15, we see where God puts his chosen people. Where does God put his chosen gifts? In one body, the church. 
To be chosen by God is to be called into the church. Those are the realities. They go hand in hand. You don't get chosen and then thrown into a closet with bits and pieces. You're chosen and you get put in this body with the church. And what characterizes a biblical church, this harmonious love we just saw, but also this thankfulness in the gospel. I don't know if you saw it. You see how many times we're commanded to be thankful in this text? Three times. Three times he implores this church to be thankful. And first, he says you should be thankful because the peace of Christ rules our hearts in the church. What a wonderful picture. Just think about that. Peace that rules the heart. We know the effect peace has when it comes to ruling. Maybe we do. That's kind of an odd thing to think of peace ruling. But I think if we break it down, what a pervasive and wonderful experience that's being presented here. Have you ever had a peace so strong that it masters you. We are weaning Ellie, my two-year-old, off of her bop-bop. Ellie, do you have your bop-bop in? Yep, there it is right there. Um, so weaning is a relative word. And uh, her pacifier, for those who don't have kids, is what a bop-bop is. Um, and uh, there are times where she becomes frustrated. She's upset by her brother or sisters. And she's tired. She comes to us and she begins to beg for the bop-bop because we're weak, inconsistent parents, we sometimes give in to this. And when she gets that pacifier, she literally, I hope you get the opportunity to see it, um, but she puts it in her mouth with two hands, crumples to the floor, her eyes roll back in her head, and she just goes, and you see her whole body relax. That's what it looks like to be ruled by the peace of something. In a year like 2020, it's not hard for each of us to imagine what our own pacifier is. Something that seems to be tucked up on a cupboard that if only you could get it, if only you could find it, it would rule you in peace. That it would cause you to experience so deep a relaxation, so deep a security that it might feel like for the first time in months you're finally able to relax and to take a breath. You see, the original audience hearing this, when they hear peace in terms like this, they would equate it to this peace that would come through Roman rule. If only they would be peaceful through military might, they could have that. And the truth is our world is looking for this peace, isn't it? We might hope that this peace comes with the dawn of a vaccine, a new political program, the arbitrary changing of a year, the discovery of a new profound relationship, or a new life goal. And we think in this way because peace is always personal, isn't it? We always have an idea of what peace is to us. But here is a peace for us all. Here, dear church, is the offer of the peace of Christ himself. Peace not found in a world which is changing or in commodities which can be consumed, but peace that is found in your heart. In other words, a peace bigger than your circumstances. Look at how Paul set up this idea of peace earlier in this letter, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in Christ, that is him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How does Jesus bring us peace? How does Jesus rule our hearts? By his blood on the cross. 
What did that do? Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you accidentally stumbled on the weirdest YouTube page you could stumble on on a Sunday morning. How does blood bring us peace? Well, he describes this in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, I'll give you a hint, we are all the you. We all start in this you, dead in our trespasses and sins. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus. How did he do this? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How does Jesus give us peace? By dealing with our sins so that we might actually have peace before God himself. We know how elusive peace is in our life. How many of you wrestle with the guilt of not measuring up to your own standards or to the standards of your family or coworkers, or professors? How many of you fail to find peace in a world that's always changing? How many of you struggle to find peace in the allure of wealth, relationships, or adventure? None of those things can provide it in a lasting way because none of those solve the biggest problem in your heart, which is the lack of peace your sin brings before God. Our hearts are prone to run from the very thing that we ought to run towards. And nothing is right if that's not right. There is no peace if we are not with this God. But in the gospel, Jesus makes it right. Not because we came to God, but because God came to us. That's the joy of Advent. That's what we're gonna talk about in December. Jesus came not just to be seen as a symbol of love, but to die as love. To deal with our sins so that we can be brought out of that legal friction, brought out of that guilt, brought out of that lack of unity, and to be restored to God himself with a pervasive peace that the Bible says surpasses all understanding. In Romans 8, Paul's giving this list of hypothetical questions. And we often get to what comes later in Romans 8, and all these things were more than conquerors through Christ Jesus but I find this to be what I've been clinging to. I was just talking with Melody beforehand. This text is what we need because what he's doing is he's, he's saying, he's imagining the challenges you will have to your peace. He's bringing these hypothetical questions. Well, what happens when this happens? What happens when you feel condemned? What happens to this peace when things don't go your way? What happens to this peace when others bring charges against you? What happens to this peace when it seems the world is teetering and what he says earlier in Romans 8, creation is groaning. What happens to your peace then? Look at how he speaks in Romans 8, 31 through 35. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword? The answer to all of these rhetorical questions, the rhetorical test that is put to our peace in life in a broken world is nothing, 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 nothing. 
for those who are chosen by God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there are many things in this world that can take away your job, your health, and even your loved ones. But nothing can take away this peace. For this peace grows out of the cradle of death already defeated on the cross. It is imperishable as the Savior who conquered the grave to bring it to you. And the truth is the only way to believe this claim, which sounds too good to be true, is to try it. If you're someone in here who has never realized that you have a need to be forgiven to bring you peace with God, I pray that today you turn. Today you experience God's choosing love and are set apart, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. Now I wanna be honest with you all here. I wrestle with thankfulness. I have the spiritual gift of pessimism and it is strong with me. It's not that I'm ungrateful. Is that a word? Ingrateful? It's not that I know language well. Uh, it's, it's not that I lack gratitude when I receive something, but the minute I see something, I'm thankful for a second, and then I imagine that thing breaking, getting spent, and fading away, and I think of what will I do when this is gone. You see, I get so distracted. I, I know Christmas is a joy with me. I get really distracted by the brokenness in this world, and in my flesh, what happens is that seed of gratitude is like a seed planted among weeds. And those weeds of, of uh, fear, those weeds of anxiety, those weeds of perceived loss choke out that gratitude and I'm always looking to hedge my bets with something. And maybe you feel the same way where gratitude is a wonderful ideal, but it's actually hard to be thankful. But this is why we're not called to be thankful alone. This is why we are called for peace to rule our hearts in one body, the church. You see, the nature of a church, as we see in the rest of Colossians, is a community that constantly reminds others of the grace of which we are thankful. Look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual, God, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So how might the church fight for thankfulness in times when it seems we have little to be thankful for? We as the church, you as individuals become so saturated with the gospel of Jesus that you can't help but leave a trail of it everywhere you go, that it would dwell in you richly. If, you have, if you're a parent and have kids, or if you're someone who has a pet, you know what it's like to have something dwell richly upon someone. You see kids playing outside in the mud, or a dog out running in the rain or the snow, and you say, that's sweet, until it comes into the house, and that snow and that mud and that water is everywhere. <laughs> and next time you see that mess, I want you to think to yourselves, this is what it means for the word of God to dwell richly in me. The church is this place where we gather together to roll around in the mud of the gospel so that everywhere we go and whatever we say, we leave droppings of this grace that fall freely from us for others to see. We make a wonderful mess for the good of the gospel. 
This word of Christ, this gospel that is being spoken of is to be so pervasive in this community that when those who are strong come in and begin to leave a mess of grace, those who are weak and wounded pick it up and are filled. This is a medicine God has given us for thankfulness. This is grace. And it's here, you see our philosophy of ministry at Sovereign Hope Church. If you want our philosophy of what we think the church looks like, here it is. Whether we are teaching, singing, warning, praying, or speaking, we want the gospel to permeate everything. If you remove things that are not the gospel, we hope you remove very few things from this church. We want everything we do to be bathed in the encouragement that comes from Christ forgiving us in love, choosing us in grace, and calling us together as the church. Why? Because we need it. I need you to remind me. You need to be reminded of this grace you have in Christ. I know for many of us, COVID has disrupted what life looks like as part of God's church, specifically those who are watching at home. Many of us who feel the lack of those who are next to us or are here struggling to breathe through a mask. And yet what we see in this list are principles that can be applied broadly. Principles that sustain underground churches in China and house churches in Sudan and broken multi-video venue churches in America. While we might not be able to gather as a group, we can all think of what it looks like to do these things to bring this experience of encouragement and thankfulness into our homes, into our text messages, our phone calls, and our video chats. What does it look like for you to reach out and encourage one another in the body with this word of Christ? What does it look like to not let distance dictate your obedience to this text, but to be entrepreneurial in what it looks like to be the church? Because here's the reality. As we sit as a semi-homeless church trying to raise $2 million in the midst of a global pandemic, while many of us are physically unable to gather with each other, we have not lost the immense grounds for thanksgiving we have as being members of Jesus' church. And this is where when you begin to look at how the New Testament authors write about the church, it changes everything. We had mics that don't work today, people running to and fro, screens that don't match up with scriptures, and yet, look at the wonder of what this mess is. Look at what Paul says when he's talking to the church in Ephesians chapter one. This is what he says is going on inside of the church. Making known to us the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What do we see in this redemption we share as the church? The fullness of God's plan to unite all things in Jesus. He continues in chapter three, verses eight through 10. What does the church now do? To me, he says, this is Paul, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. That is the full inclusion, bringing that diversity into the unity of God's promise to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you realize this side of the cross, we have the privilege of seeing the full plan of God's will to redeem the world through Jesus Christ. Look at how Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 1, of our salvation, concerning this salvation, your salvation, church. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, they heard these promises of God in the Old Testament and they said, when do I get to see it? inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. How did they serve you? Where did they serve you? In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. Do you know what you've just seen? I love sports. And there are moments in sports where you see somebody break a record and the whole crowd stands to their feet. And I remember saying this when Drew Brees broke a record the other day to my son. Do you know what you've just seen? Do you know what you see in here, in this room? David, King David, the man after God's own heart, danced before the presence of the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant. Solomon saw the glory of the Lord fill the temple with radiant, visible splendor. And yet, do you understand what Paul and Peter are saying? David and Solomon would have given up all of it to be here with us today, to be watching at home, to watch us fumble with microphones and put up with seating charts. The joy they would have to hear not the promise and to see not the shadow, but to hear the name Jesus proclaimed. The Messiah has a name, he's a person. He's no longer an identity in the future. He is the one who has come to save us. The church is no longer this wonderful hope of the remnant, but it is here. Christ has died to gather it. For David to get a text midweek encouraging him in the gospel would have sent him over the moon. He couldn't imagine it. He danced undignified before the Lord way back in the Old Testament. Imagine what he would do today. This is the privilege for us that fuels our thanksgiving. Since we have such a hope, everything we do is worship fueled by this thankfulness we see in the gospel. And this is Paul's clincher in Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To be a Christian is to be given grounds for life and thankfulness in the gospel. And talking with our staff and just me and Sarah talking about life, it made me think of um, Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, the prophet is speaking to a people who are disheartened, 
there's heartened because God has promised to rebuild the temple. They've brought exiles back to the promised land to rebuild this temple. And yet, just like 2020, perhaps for you, it seems that every corner, every new week, every press conference, the plans are getting frustrated and they're wondering, is this ever going to happen? Why are we here if the temple's not being built? What hope do we have in a world that seems to be falling apart? But in chapter four, God reminds them that he's gonna do exactly what he said. He says, Zerubbabel, the, the governor at this time, he's gonna be the one to do it. Zerubbabel will get it done. He will oversee the temple rebuilding. And look at what he says. I want you to pay attention to these words in verses eight through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now listen here. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line, that's a tool they used to build, in the hand of Zerubbabel. I love that line. How many of you feel that we are living in the small days of insufficient hopes, fleeting dreams, and sometimes minimal progress. But do not despair the days of small things, for we have seen a builder greater than Zerubbabel. We are part of a temple made not by human hands, but made of living stones bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as we gather together to love one another, we do so not begrudgingly, even though it might seem the world itself is wasting away. For we know one day there will be another temple, a future glorious, perfect one. And as we look back and as we look forward, we encourage one another as we sing thankful praises to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, in thinking through this text and the commands to, to love, and to be at peace, the commands to be thankful, I can't help but think of a, a symbol or a gong that there's nothing that those things will do unless it's struck. But when it's struck, it resounds for all to hear. Lord, I pray that this body, here and online, is struck with the mallet of grace. That our nature as holy and set-apart, beloved individuals causes a reverberating effect where despite all that you have providentially ordained to go on in 2020, that the sound is heard in our homes, in our workplaces, on our phone calls, and in our gathering. Lord Jesus, make us thankful and cover us in love because of your son and for the sake of one another. We pray this in your name, amen.